to get us started, I want to talk about something that, you know, I dedicated my scientific career to, and that's knowing what the brain is. And this came for a couple of reasons. One is I, it's just an amazing organ, and the idea that it, all these complex behaviors could come out of this ball of cells really fascinated me. And it fascinated me, fascinated me in part because I have a learning disability, which affects my, similar to dyslexia affects a whole bunch of things. So those two combinations led me to move into a lab that studied genetics and developmental biology in the brain. And what was interesting is I came into neuroscience right at the junction when we were starting to sequence the whole genome, but it was still a lot of work. Still an individual doing multiple experiments that came down to an individual reading, you know, on a on a on these plates, A B C A G C T A G C T, just reading it down. That was my start into science. Um, luckily, I luckily at this point you could farm that out, as it were. There was companies who saw value in focusing on these services and would provide them to scientists. So you get into this scenario where. We know what the behavior is, so thinking about it from the normal scientific method paradigm, which is experiment, test, retest, typically what you would do is you would set up an experiment, you would look at the mouse's behavior, and then you would try and see what you could do in its environment, with its food, with all these different things, maybe it's a viral infection, to change its behavior. And right at the time that I was doing this, you could make, you could knock a gene out of a mouse. So you do this by replacing the gene with a faulty copy of the gene in, a, in, a, in an egg. So then that egg gets fertilized, 50% of the embryos come out with this knockout, and then you test and see what happens. What was scary as a scientist is that we didn't actually know what any of these genes did. We just knew that they were expressed in the brain because you could crunch up a bunch of brain cells and then sequence all the genes that were in there. You could take just the RNA, which would tell you what genes were expressed rather than what genes were in the body, and you could see which ones were expressed. And this was hard work as a slog because you're still doing it one by one. And then you would, as a PhD student, you would pick a winner, right? <laughs> you would, you'd say this gene looks like it's expressed more than these genes. And so it must be more important. And you go and do your test. And your test would take you a year to set up. Now think about this. Your whole PhD is based off of the idea of, and not just your PhD, but your career, is based off the idea that you've picked the right one. Not only have you picked the right one, but you now have to prove that it, that it met what you thought it meant. And that's where the human element of science comes in. For many students, that becomes really difficult. It becomes a very stressful activity because if you picked the, the wrong gene to knock out, you've now just spent a lot of your PhD mentors' money, You've gotten, and they've gotten nothing out of it. Now, a good mentor helps you figure out how you, how you understand science when it doesn't work because you know the answer of that gene's not important is a really important question to ask and you can ask why why is it still exist if it's not 
important with big air quotes because it does does something it's just probably and this is kind of you know where we got to in the science world it's probably that a mouse is just has such a boring life that this gene is not really required you're not really forcing the mouse to do anything other than poop and eat in a in a cage that's pretty easy to do you don't need a lot of brain cells to do that so you started to understand that a lot of these genes while they're very important the nuance of why they were used and what they were doing probably is lost in a lab environment and that this led to a lot of really interesting experiments and also helped us push the edges right because now you could no longer do one type of experiment you couldn't just knock the knock a gene out and voila you do you know you do you look at it, it its behavior and you're done you started having to look in the nuance right which is which is fertile ground for creativity and all these other activities that were part of what got me into science and kept me in science for so long so the the idea would be that we've knocked this gene out what did it that do to other genes what did that do to the cell structure what did that do and each one of these are different types of experiments and as you started to get better at this a lot of techniques came along that you could then take part of the brain you call it organotypic slice experiments you could actually slice the, the the brain up and put it into a dish of media that would keep that keep that alive you could then infect that that piece of brain with different other genes so now you could take your knocked out mouse and you could check for other genes and then you could do a lot of things a lot of interesting experiments in cell biology looking at cell-to-cell -cell contact and other things but where it got really cool is you had these other experiments so if you can knock a gene out you can express more of it you can double the amount that would normally be expressed or just take the take the you know take the governor completely off and express a hundred a thousand times and then make these mice that express too much of this one gene but the problem was the way that the, the way you could do the experiments you could it was either all or none so you could only say I'm gonna express in every cell in the brain because I know how that's done and I know how that's regulated again going back to this idea that we have this combination of regulation that allows you to to target specific times specific areas of the body and specific cell types at this point in, in in history we didn't really have real great nuance so we didn't know how you could put those together so you had to take you had to take really small parts that you knew were for X so for example there's a, a gene which we know is expressed in almost every gene called neuro D and yes it was named because it's expressed during neural differentiation <laughs> again scientists aren't always the best with names we don't always we don't always go with the cool names sometimes um, like Sonic Hedgehog um, but that's a digression um, so when we start talking about this when we start looking at how we could overexpress, so that we have now have too little too much to compare to the normal we now have a really attractive system to, to do really interesting experiments because now you can say well when you have too little the normal behavior of the mouse doesn't change 
because it's not required for that time. It's not required for just normal activity. It's probably only required for this kind of stress or that kind of stress, which you can't always do. Um, and there's so many different stresses that an, that an animal would go through or a human would go through in a normal world rather than a sterile lab world. And then you can do, but in a sterile lab world, because you need that baseline of X, Y, or Z before you can take it to the normal world, you start to get these overexpression experiments. What got really cool is as the genetic and genomic technology got better and we could start sequencing and working with larger and larger stretches of genes, you started to get to this, this scenario where you could take literally a whole gene. And when I say a whole gene, not just the, the parts that make an RNA, but like all the things that control it, all the other pieces. And you could create this, what we call bacterial artificial chromosomes or BACs. And this, is, this gave you the gene with all its expression, so it would only be expressed in the places where it should be expressed at the times that it should be expressed. But now because this doesn't replace the gene, it adds a new copy of it into the mouse, in this case. Now you've doubled, tripled, quadrupled. So you get two things out of this. You can do it in such a way that you get a much more targeted experiment. So you know that you're only overexpressing a gene in cell type X, Y, or Z. And you're only doing it when it should be expressed. And, and what comes out of this is that you get these really cool experiments where you know you have the confidence as a scientist to say I know that this isn't just an offset because I've just blown the shoes out of the system I haven't expressed it everywhere I've only expressed it where it needs to be at the times when it needs to be expressed so you get you get the ability to do to have much more confidence so you can do much more complicated experiments afterwards so for example one of the experiments that we did for my PhD was we took a a back for this one gene that we knew was expressed only in the cerebellum and only in this one specific cell type in the cerebellum but it was a nightmare to, to work with it was a large gene it wasn't clear what it did um, it was a re relatively unknown gene at the time it didn't even have a real name yet it just had it was called Rue 49 and it was called Rue 49 because Rue was the name of the of the person who had done the initial screen to find this gene, and it was the 49th gene. So not really a really expressive name. And so what we did was we overexpressed it only in the cerebellum, and we got this really weird result where we where there the mouse cerebellum, it didn't get bigger, didn't get smaller. We didn't really seem to have more cells. So we had to do a series of really complicated experiments. But we could do that, and we could have confidence that there was something there, even though to the eye it wasn't it wasn't hundred percent there, right? You can you, you kinda looked at it and said, Well, it's different, but is it different different or is it just it's a weird mouse? <laughs> did we did we screw up the mouse or did we do what we th we planned to do, which is just to express this gene in 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 the cell types that we wanted. And because we'd done all the work to look at the genomics and the genetics, we could say, yep, we're confident we have all the regulatory elements. This gene is only expressed at the times it should be expressed and where it should be expressed. 
let's go for it. And so we, we ended up doing a lot of complicated experiments and, and eventually we found out that the reason the brain looked maybe a little bit bigger but also looked weird is because there's all these qualifiers. So the brain is stuck in a skull. So you have a maximum amount of space. Unless you alter the skull, which this gene couldn't do, you're limited in space. But what you can do, and so one of the things that you see in human brains is that we have these invaginations. So we have crevices and whatnot, and that increases the surface area, which allows you to have more cells. And so the reason it looked bigger, but it didn't look quite right, is because most of the cells were inwards. But because of the way the brain works, to the naked eye, it doesn't look any bigger. Right, so these on the outside edge. So once you start cutting it up, once you start looking at the sides, you start to see these these extra pieces, and it was pretty amazing. Um, and because of the cell numbers, we couldn't just count cell numbers by eye. Um, for example, as you're doing this, you're realizing that there are probably literally trillions of neurons in one little in one little one millimeter piece of of brain. That's really hard to count by hand. So we actually started looking at ways to count using a computer. And so again, remember this is the this is the mid nineties, late nineties. We don't have we didn't have the kind of you know cameras that we do today where you can just you know, the new iPhone can count for you. <laughs> you take a picture and it counts for you. That didn't exist. Um, so we had to kind of develop a program that would allow us to do that. And again, as the test technology got better, we could actually do reverse engineering experiments. So we came up with this way that you could actually replace part of a gene with this fluorescent protein that would allow you to see it in a microscope. Um, the pro protein's called GFP, which is green fluorescent protein. It actually comes from jellyfish. And you can, you can see this, and so in our house we have an axolotl who has um, the GFP gene introduced into its skin. So it glows green when you shine a UV light on it. It's very cool stuff. But you could do that and replace part of a gene. And so what that gives you is the exact location and the exact timing during development that any gene is expressed in when you put it into this bag. And so this kind of changed the way people thought about genetic experiments. And you could start to industrialize. Um, now sometimes that word has a bad connotation. In this case it's actually really cool because what you could then do is all this just yeoman and painful work that isn't worth it for an individual grad student or an individual postdoc who's trying to prove their worth as a scientist to do unless you have to. But again we're at this point where you weren't getting credit for that work like it was thought that that should just that was just the cost of doing business. Which it isn't. If it takes you six months to make a mouse and it takes you another six months to to do the analysis that's a year a year before you can even set up to do an experiment to prove that you're a good enough scientist to be awarded your PhD is <clears throat> it's not fair it's not um, because we're getting to that point and again this is where the business of science comes into it we're getting to that point where you weren't allowed credit for that so and the way you'd get credit in the scientific world towards your PhD 
towards proving that you should get a postdoc or proving you should be get your own lab is you publish the data in a peer-reviewed publication. Once you get that publication, you know, you get the check mark. And so, you know, while everybody wants to publish, you ha your peers have to think that it's in interesting enough to be published. And so you spend your whole career trying to make decisions on what kind of experiments you, can, you should do. And sometimes the business gets in the way, right? Because you decide to do an experiment because it's big, big and sexy and will get you a publication. But it might not be the right experiment. Um, and we got into this and, and into over multiple years of the, the new technology, the, the shiny new object was uh, what they called gene arrays, which allowed you to test thousands of genes and gene variants for, and the difference between a gene and a gene variant is the gene is the, as we've talked about before, what, get ex what gets expressed. But as I hinted at, um, there's also times where you have the same gene which does a different job in the heart and the muscle or the heart and the brain. Sometimes what you have is you have a, an alternate piece that you put on that gene to make it work differently in those two cells. Um, and that's a gene variant. And that's, that's a really cool area of science that confounded us until we got to the point where we knew the genome well enough to say, oh, this isn't two genes, this is one gene, and you just take this piece instead of that piece. It's, we, we, we started to find out that gene was mo genes were more of Lego than we thought. But the cool thing is you use the same, use the same methods and logic to decide whether you're using a variant, a heart variant versus a brain variant for the same gene, as you do for whether you're going to turn it on or off. It's all the same mechanisms. It's just physical placement. So if you do, if you have the neuro version, you may have a a a flag that says I only express me in the brain, which allows you to make this choice. But I digress. Where I was going with that is using this new technology where we could take a whole bacterial chromosome and we could express it where we exactly where it should be expressed allows you to to build out an atlas and that was one of the things that uh, came out of some of the work that I was part of was building out this atlas this idea that if you took every gene you could find and you replaced part of that gene with GFP, you could then track where it went on. And if you did this over time, you would be able to tell when it came on, when it came off, all these really cool nuanced things. Um, and then you can then start to, to provide this base of understanding to allow people to make really good choices as far as their experiments. Because they know where it's expressed, when it's expressed, you can start to really ask interesting questions. And that's how we got to here. That's how we get to now. Where we're at this point where you have <coughs> excuse me, a combination of this, we know where it's expressed. We know a bit about the we know the genomic sequence. So how do those two interact? Right? And that's where we start to get to now where the where we have the, the human genome sequence is is really starting to bear fruit, as it were. Um, we see that with the COVID vaccines. We see that with some of the new rare disease treatments that are coming out. 
this new age of science is built on that platform of, of we now have that understanding of the genome and we've understood the nuance of it and the, and the history of science is always this where we build this platform and they go, huh, well, shit, that didn't work out the way we thought it would. We didn't actually know that. That's not what happened. So it becomes this, this you know, ongoing, organic, dynamic system that allows you to ask, always have the ability to ask really cool questions. And that was one of the, that's one of the things that kept me in science. It's one of the things that, that moved me from somebody really interested in neurons to somebody looking at the kinetics of enzymes. There's no real relation there, but it was a slow, gradual, we built this platform. And then as I started to look at the questions, you go, huh, well, these enzymes keep getting, keep getting in my way because they would keep showing up in places where you didn't think they were going to show up. <laughs> and no one knew about them. And so I, then you get into this, well, they're... If they're part of the system that I'm trying to understand and no one else knows about them, you can make a career out of it. Now, hindsight being 2020, I kind of <laughs> didn't do a great job of that because I'm no longer in science. But we're starting to see those, those genes are important. And so it's really cool to see how the science works, right? Um, sometimes it takes longer than you want, but the, the, it's a self-correcting system. It moves slowly, but it corrects for itself. Doesn't mean the people were wrong. It just means that we didn't know enough to know what we didn't know. And with that, I thank you for listening. And that's it for today. And to get us started, I want to talk about something that, you know, I dedicated my scientific career to. And that's knowing what the brain is. And this came for a couple reasons. One is I, it's just an amazing organ. And the idea that it, all these complex behaviors could come out of this ball of cells really fascinated me. And it fascinated me, fascinated me in part because I have a learning disability, which affects my, similar to dyslexia, which affects a whole bunch of things. So those two combinations led me to move into a lab that studied genetics and developmental biology in the brain. And what was interesting is I came into neuroscience right at the junction when we were starting to sequence the whole genome, but it was still a lot of work. Still an individual doing multiple experiments that came down to an individual reading, you know, on a on a on these plates. A, B, C, A, G, C, T, A, G, C, T, just reading it down. That was my start into science. Um, luckily, I, luckily, at this point, you could farm that out, as it were. There was companies who saw value in focusing on these services and would provide them to scientists. So you get into this scenario where we know what the behavior is. So thinking about it from the normal scientific method paradigm, which is experiment test, retest. Typically what you would do is you would set up an experiment, you would look at the mouse's behavior, and then you would try and see what you could do in its environment, with its food, with all these different things. Maybe it's a viral infection to change its behavior. 
And right at the time that I was doing this, you could make you could knock a gene out of a mouse. So you do this by replacing the gene with a faulty copy of the gene in a in a in an egg. So then that egg gets fertilized. 50% of the embryos come out with this knockout. And then you test and see what happens. What was scary as a scientist is that we didn't actually know what any of these genes did. We just knew that they were expressed in the brain because you could crunch up a bunch of brain cells and then sequence all the genes that were in there. You could take just the RNA, which would tell you what genes were expressed rather than what genes were in the body, and you could see which ones were expressed. And this was hard work as a slog because you're still doing it one by one. And then you would, as a PhD student, you would pick a winner, right? <laughs> you would, you'd say, this gene looks like it's expressed more than these genes, and so it must be more important. And you'd go and do your test, and your test would take you a year to set up. Now think about this. Your whole PhD is based off of the idea of, and not just your PhD, but your career, is based off the idea that you've picked the right one. Not only have you picked the right one, but you now have to prove that it that it met what you thought it meant. And that's where the human element of science comes in. For many students, that becomes really difficult. It becomes a very stressful activity. Because if you picked the, the wrong gene to knock out, you've now just spent a lot of your PhD mentors' money, You've gotten, and they've gotten nothing out of it. Now, a good mentor helps you figure out how you how you understand science when it doesn't work because you know the answer of that gene's not important is a really important question to ask and you can ask why why is it still exist if it's not important with big air quotes because it does does something it's just probably and this is kind of you know where we got to in the science world it's probably that a mouse is just has such a boring life that this gene is not really required. You're not really forcing the mouse to do anything other than poop and eat in a, in a cage. That's pretty easy to do. You don't need a lot of brain cells to do that. So you started to understand that a lot of these genes, while they're very important, the nuance of why they were used and what they were doing probably is lost in a lab environment. And this led to a lot of really interesting experiments. And it also helped us push the edges, right? Because now you could no longer do one type of experiment. You couldn't just knock, the, knock a gene out and voila, you do, you know, you do, you look at it, it, its behavior and you're done. You started having to look in the nuance, right? Which is, which is fertile ground for creativity and all these other activities that were part of what got me into science and kept me in science for so long. So the, the idea would be that we've knocked this gene out. What did it, that do to other genes? What did that do to the cell structure? What did that do? And each one of these are different types of experiments. And as you started to get better at this, a lot of techniques came along that you could then take part of the brain, you call it organotypic slice experiments. You could actually slice the the, the brain up and put it into a dish of media that would keep that keep that alive you could then infect that that piece of brain with different other genes 
So now you could take your knocked out mouse and you could check for other genes. And then you could do a lot of things, a lot of interesting experiments in cell biology, looking at cell-to-cell -cell contact and other things. But where it got really cool is you had these other experiments. So if you can knock a gene out, you can express more of it. You can double the amount that would normally be expressed, or just take the take the you know take the governor completely off and express a hundred, a thousand times, and then make these mice that express too much of this one gene but the problem was the way that the, the way you could do the experiments you could it was either all or none so you could only say I'm gonna express in every cell in the brain because I know how that's done and I know how that's regulated again going back to this idea that we have this combination of regulation that allows you to to target specific times specific areas of the body and specific cell types at this point in, in in history we didn't really have real great nuance so we didn't know how you could put those together so you had to take you had to take really small parts that you knew were for X so for example there's a, a gene which we know is expressed in almost every gene called neuro D and yes it was named because it's expressed during neural differentiation <laughs> again scientists aren't always the best with names we don't always we don't always go with the cool names sometimes um, like Sonic Hedgehog, um, but that's a digression. Um, so when we start talking about this, when we start looking at how we could overexpress, so that we ha now have too little, too much to compare to the normal, we now have a really attractive system to, to do really interesting experiments, because now you can say, well, when you have too little, the normal behavior of the mouse doesn't change, because it's not required for that time. It's not required for just normal activity. It's probably only required for this kind of stress or that kind of stress, which you can't always do. Um, and there's so many different stresses that an, that an animal would go through or a human would go through in a normal world rather than a sterile lab world. And then you can do, but in a sterile lab world, because you need that baseline of X, Y, or Z before you can take it to the normal world, you start to get these overexpression experiments. What got really cool is as the genetic and genomic technology got better and we could start sequencing and working with larger and larger stretches of genes, you started to get to this, this scenario where you could take literally a whole gene. And when I say a whole gene, not just the, the parts that make an RNA, but like all the things that control it, all the other pieces and you could create this what we call bacterial artificial chromosomes or BACs and this is this gave you the gene with all its expression so it only be expressed in the places where it should be expressed at the times that it should be expressed but now because this doesn't replace the gene it adds a new copy of it into the mouse in this case now you've doubled tripled quadrupled so you get two things out of this. You can do it in such a way that you get a much more targeted experiment. So you know that you're only overexpressing a gene in cell type X, Y, or Z. And you're only doing it when it should be expressed. And, and what comes out of this is that you get these really cool experiments where you know you have the confidence as a scientist to say, I know that this isn't just an offset because I've just 
blown the shoes out of the system. I haven't expressed it everywhere. I've only expressed it where it needs to be, at the times when it needs to be expressed. So you get you get the ability to do to have much more confidence. So you can do much more complicated experiments afterwards. So for example, one of the experiments we did for my PhD was we took a a back for this one gene that we knew was expressed only in the cerebellum and only in this one specific cell type in the cerebellum. But it was a nightmare to, to work with. It was a large gene. It wasn't clear what it did. Um, it was a re relatively unknown gene at the time. It didn't even have a real name yet. It just had, it was called Rue 49. And it was called Rue 49 because Rue was the name of the of the person who had done the initial screen to find this gene, and it was the 49th gene. So not really a really expressive name. And so what we did was we overexpressed it only in the cerebellum, and we got this really weird result where we where there the mouse cerebellum, it didn't get bigger, didn't get smaller. We didn't really seem to have new, more cells. So we had to do a series of really complicated experiments. But we could do that, and we could have confidence that there was something there, even though to the eye it wasn't it wasn't a hundred percent there, right? You can you, you kind of looked at it and said, Well, it's different, but is it different different? Or is it just it's a weird mouse? <laughs> did we did we screw up the mouse or did we do what we th we planned to do, which is just to express this gene in 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 the cell types that we wanted. And because we'd done all the work to look at the genomics and the genetics, we could say, yep, we're confident we have all the regulatory elements. This gene is only expressed at the times it should be expressed and where it should be expressed. Let's go for it. And so we, we ended up doing a lot of complicated experiments and, and eventually we found out that the reason the brain looked maybe a little bit bigger but also looked weird is because there's all these qualifiers. So the brain is stuck in a skull. So you have a maximum amount of space. Unless you alter the skull, which this gene couldn't do, you're limited in space. But what you can do, and so one of the things that you see in human brains is that we have these invaginations. So we have crevices and whatnot, and that increases the surface area, which allows you to have more cells. And so the reason it looked bigger but it didn't look quite right is because most of the cells were inwards but because of the way the brain works to the naked eye it doesn't look any bigger right so these on the outside edge so once you start cutting it up once you start looking at the sides you start to see these these extra pieces and it was pretty amazing um, and because of the cell numbers we couldn't just count cell numbers by eye um, for example as you're doing this, you're realizing that there are probably literally trillions of neurons in one little in one little one millimeter piece of of brain. That's really hard to count by hand. So we actually started looking at ways to count using a computer. And so again, remember this is the this is the mid '90s, late '90s. We don't ha we didn't have the kind of you know, cameras that we do today where you can just, you know, the new iPhone can count for you. <laughs> you take a picture and it counts for you. That didn't exist. Um, so we had to kind of develop a program that would allow us to do that. And again, 
as the test technology got better, we could actually do reverse engineering experiments. So we came up with this way that you could actually replace part of a gene with this fluorescent protein that would allow you to see it in a microscope. Um, the pro protein's called GFP, which is green fluorescent protein, and it actually comes from jellyfish. And you can, you can see this, and so in our house we have an axolotl who has um, the GFP gene introduced into its skin. So it glows green when you shine a UV light on it. It's very cool stuff. But you could do that and replace part of a gene. And so what that gives you is the exact location and the exact timing during development that any gene is expressed in when you put it into this bat. And so this kind of changed the way people thought about genetic experiments. And you could start to industrialize. Um, now sometimes that word has a bad connotation. In this case it's actually really cool because what you could then do is all this just yeoman and painful work that isn't worth it for an individual grad student or an individual postdoc who's trying to prove their worth as a scientist to do unless you have to. But again we're at this point where you weren't getting credit for that work like it was thought that that should just that was just the cost of doing business. Which it isn't. It takes you six months to make a mouse and it takes you another six months to to do the analysis that's a year a year before you can even set up to do an experiment to prove that you're a good enough scientist to be awarded your PhD is <clears throat> it's not fair it's not um, because we're getting to that point and again this is where the business of science comes into it we're getting to that point where you weren't allowed credit for that so and the way you'd get credit in the scientific world towards your PhD or towards proving that you should get a postdoc or proving you should be get your own lab is you publish the data in a peer-reviewed publication once you get that publication you know you get the check mark and so you know while everybody wants to publish you ha your peers have to think that it's in interesting enough to be published and so you spend your whole career trying to make decisions on what kind of experiments you, can, you should do and sometimes the business gets in the way right because you decide to do an experiment because it's big big and sexy and will get you a publication but it might not be the right experiment um, and we got into this and in, in, into over multiple years of the bet the new technology this the shiny new object was uh, what they called gene arrays which allowed you to test thousands of genes and gene variants for and the difference between a gene and a gene variant is the gene is the as we've talked about before what get ex what gets expressed but as I hinted at um, there's also times where you have the same gene which does a different job in the heart and the muscle or the heart and the brain sometimes what you have is you have an alternate piece that you put on that gene to make it work differently in those two cells um, and that's a gene variant and that's that's a really cool area of science that confounded us until we got to the point where we knew the genome well enough to say oh this isn't two genes this is one gene and you just take this piece instead of that piece it's we we, we started to find out that gene was genes were more of Lego than we thought but the cool thing is you use the same you use the same methods and logic to decide whether you're using a variant 
a heart variant versus a brain variant for the same gene as you do for whether you're going to turn it on or off. It's all the same mechanisms. It's just physical placement. So if you do, if you have the neuroversion, you may have a a a flag that says only express me in the brain, which allows you to make this choice. But I digress. Where I was going with that is using this new technology where we could take a whole bacterial chromosome and we could express it where we exactly where it should be expressed allows you to to build out an atlas and that was one of the things that uh, came out of some of the work that I was part of was building out this atlas this idea that if you took every gene you could find and you replaced part of that gene with GFP you could then track where it went on and if you did this over time you would be able to tell when it came on, when it came off, all these really cool nuanced things. Um, and then you can then start to, to provide this base of understanding to allow people to make really good choices as far as their experiments. Because they know where it's expressed, when it's expressed, you can start to really ask interesting questions. And that's how we got to here. That's how we get to now, where we're at this point where you have <coughs> excuse me, a combination of this, we know where it's expressed, we know a bit about the, we know the genomic sequence, so how do those two interact, right? And that's where we start to get to now, where the, where we have the, the human genome sequence is, is really starting to bear fruit, as it were. Um, we see that with the COVID vaccines, we see that with some of the new rare disease treatments that are coming out. This new age of science is built on that platform of, of we now have that understanding of the genome and we've understood the nuance of it. And the, and the history of science is always this, where we build this platform and they go, huh, well, shit, that didn't work out the way we thought it would. We didn't actually know that. That's not what happened. So it becomes this, this you know, ongoing organic dynamic system that allows you to ask always have the ability to ask really cool questions and that was one of the, that's one of the things that kept me in science it's one of the things that that moved me from somebody really interested in neurons to somebody looking at the kinetics of enzymes there's no real relation there but it was a slow gradual we built this platform and then as I started to look at the questions you go huh well these enzymes keep getting keep getting in my way because they would keep showing up in places where you didn't think they were going to show up <laughs> and no one knew about them and so I, then you get into this well they're if they're part of the system that I'm trying to understand and no one else knows about them you can make a career out of it now hindsight being 2020 I kind of didn't do a great job of that because I'm no longer in science. But we're starting to see those those genes are important. And so it's really cool to see how the science works, right? Um, sometimes it takes longer than you want, but the, the it's a self-correcting system. It moves slowly, but it corrects for itself. doesn't mean the people were wrong. It just means that we didn't know enough to know what we didn't know. And with that, I thank you for listening.
and that's it for today.